Chapter 7 of A New England Girlhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Velwest. A New England Girlhood. Outlined from Memory by Lucy Larcombe. Chapter 7 Beginning to Work. A child does not easily comprehend even the plain fact of death. Though I had looked upon my father's still pale face in his coffin, the impression it left upon me was of sleep, more peaceful and sacred than common slumber, yet only sleep. My dreams of him were for a long time so vivid that I would say to myself, he was here yesterday, he will be here again tomorrow, with a feeling that amounted to expectation. We missed him, we children, large and small, who made up the yet untrained home crew, as a ship misses the man at the helm. His grave, clear perception of what was best for us, his brief words that decided once and for all the course we were to take, had been far more to us than we knew. It was hardest of all for my mother, who had been accustomed to depend entirely upon him, Left with her eight children, the eldest a boy of eighteen years, and with no property except the roof that sheltered us, and a small strip of land, her situation was full of perplexities which we little ones could not at all understand. To be fed like the ravens and clothed like the grass of the field seemed to me, for one, a perfectly natural thing, and I often wondered why my mother was so fretted and anxious. I knew that she believed in God, and in the promises of the Bible, and yet she seemed sometimes to forget everything but her troubles and her helplessness. I felt almost like preaching to her, but I was too small a child to do that, I well knew. So I did the next best thing I could think of. I sang hymns, as if singing to myself, while I meant them for her. Sitting at the window with my book and knitting, while she was preparing dinner or supper, with a depressed air because she missed the abundant provision to which she had been accustomed, I would go from him to him, selecting those which I thought would be most comforting to her, out of the many that my memory book contained, and taking care to pronounce the words distinctly. I was glad to observe that she listened to Come Ye Disconsolate and How Firm a Foundation, and that she grew more cheerful, though I did not feel sure that my singing cheered her so much as some happier thought that had come to her out of her own heart. Nobody but my mother, indeed, would have called my chirping singing. But as she did not seem displeased, I went on, a little more confidently, with some hymns that I loved for their starry suggestions. When marshalled on the nightly plain, and brightest and best of the sons of the morning, and watchmen tell us of the night, the most beautiful picture in the Bible to me, certainly the loveliest in the Old Testament, had always been that one painted by prophecy of the time when wild and tame creatures should live together in peace and children should be their fearless playmates. Even the savage wolf poverty would be pleasant and neighborly then, no doubt. A little child among them, leading them, stood looking wistfully down through the soft sunrise of that approaching day into the cold and darkness of the world. Oh, it would be so much better than the Garden of Eden! 
Yes, and it would be a great deal better, I thought, to live in the millennium than even to die and go to heaven, although so many people around me talked as if that were the most desirable thing of all. But I could never understand why, if God sent us here, we should be in haste to get away, even to go to a pleasanter place. I was perplexed by a good many matters besides. I had learned to keep most of my thoughts to myself, but I did venture to ask about the resurrection, how it was that those who had died and gone straight to heaven, and had been singing there for thousands of years, could have any use for the dust to which their bodies had returned. Were they not already as alive as they could be? I found that there were different ideas of the resurrection among orthodox people even then. I was told, however, that this was too deep a matter for me, and so I ceased asking questions. But I pondered the matter of death. What did it mean? The Apostle Paul gave me more light on the subject than any of the ministers did, and, as usual, a poem helped me. It was Pope's Ode, beginning with Vital Spark of Heavenly Flame, which I learned out of a reading book. To die was to languish into life. That was the meaning of it, and I loved to repeat to myself the words, Hark, they whisper, angels say, Sister Spirit, come away. The world recedes, it disappears. Heaven opens on my eyes, my ears, with sound seraphic ring. A hymn that I learned a little later expressed to me the same satisfying thought. For strangers into life we come, and dying is but going home. The Apostle's words, with which the song of the dying Christian to his soul ends, left the whole cloudy question lit up with sunshine to my childish thoughts. O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? My father was dead, but that only meant that he had gone to a better home than the one he lived in with us, and by and by we should go home too. Meanwhile the millennium was coming, and some people thought it was very near. And what was the millennium? Why, the time when everybody on earth would live just as they do in heaven. Nobody would be selfish. Nobody would be unkind. No, not so much as in a single thought. What a delightful world this would be to live in then. Heaven itself could scarcely be much better. Perhaps people would not die at all, but when the right time came, would slip quietly away into heaven, just as Enoch did. My father had believed in the near millennium. His very last writing in his sick room was a penciled computation from the prophets of that time when it would begin. The first minister who preached in our church, long before I was born, had studied the subject much and had written books upon this, his favorite theme. The thought of it was continually breaking out like bloom and sunshine from the stern doctrines of the period. One question in this connection puzzled me a good deal. Were people going to be made good in spite of themselves, whether they wanted to or not? And what would be done with the bad ones, if there were any left? I did not like to think of their being killed off, and yet everybody must be good or it would not be a true millennium. It certainly would not matter much who was rich and who was poor if goodness and not money was the thing everybody cared for. Oh, if the millennium would only begin now! I felt as if it were hardly fair to me that I should not be here during those happy thousand years when I wanted to so much. 
but I had not lived even my short life in the world without leading something of my own faults and perversities, and when I saw that there was no sign of an approaching millennium in my heart, I had to conclude that it might be a great way off after all. Yet the very thought of it brought warmth and illumination to my dreams by day and by night. It was coming, sometime, and the people who were in heaven would be as glad of it as those who remained on earth. That it was a hard world for my mother and her children to live in at present I could not help seeing. The older members of the family found occupations by which the domestic burdens were lifted a little, but with only the three youngest to clothe and to keep at school there was still much more outgo than income, and my mother's discouragement every day increased. My eldest brother had gone to sea with a relative who was master of a merchant vessel in the South American trade. His inclination led him that way. It seemed to open before him a prospect of profitable business, and my mother looked upon him as her future stay and support. One day she came in among us children, looking strangely excited. I heard her tell someone afterwards that she had just been to hear Father Taylor preach, the sailor's minister, whose coming to our town must have been a rare occurrence. His words had touched her personally, for he had spoken to mothers whose firstborn had left them to venture upon strange seas and to seek unknown lands. He had even given to the wanderer he described the name of her own absent son, Benjamin. As she left the church, she met a neighbor who informed her that the brig, Mexican, had arrived at Salem in trouble. It was the vessel in which my brother had sailed only a short time before, expecting to be absent for months. Pirates was the only word we children caught, as she hastened away from the house, not knowing whether her son was alive or not. Fortunately, the news hardly reached the town before my brother himself did. She met him in the street and brought him home with her, forgetting all her anxieties in her joy at his safety. The Mexican had been attacked on the high seas by the piratical craft Panda, robbed of $20,000 in specie, set on fire, and abandoned to her fate, with the crew fastened down in the hold. One small skylight had accidentally been overlooked by the freebooters. The captain discovered it, and making his way through it to the deck, succeeded in putting out the fire, else vessel and sailors would have sunk together, and their fate would never have been known. Breathlessly we listened whenever my brother would relate the story, which he did not at all enjoy doing, for a cutlass had been swung over his head, and his life threatened by the pirate's boatswain, demanding more money, after all had been taken. A Genoese messmate, Iacomo, shortened to plain Jack by the Mexican's crew, came to see my brother one day, and at the dinner-table he went through the whole adventure in pantomime, which we children watched with wide-eyed terror and amusement. For there was some comedy mixed with what had been so nearly a tragedy, and Jack made us see the very whites of the black cook's eyes, who, favored by his color, had hidden himself all except that dilated whiteness between two great casks in the hold. Jack himself, had fallen through a trap-door, was badly hurt, and could not extricate himself. It was very ludicrous. Jack crept under the table to show us how he and the cook made eyes at each other down there in the darkness, not daring to speak. The pantomime was necessary, for the Genoese had very little English at his command. When the pirate crew were brought into Salem for trial, my brother had the questionable satisfaction of identifying in the courtroom the ruffian of a boatswain who had threatened his life. This boatswain and several others of the crew were executed in Boston. 
The boy found his brief sailor experience quite enough for him, and afterward settled down quietly to the trade of a carpenter. Changes thickened in the air around us. Not the least among them was the burning of our meeting-house, in which we had all been baptized. One Sunday morning we children were told, when we woke, that we could not go to meeting that day, because the church was a heap of smoking ruins. It seemed to me almost like the end of the world. During my father's life, a few years before my birth, his thoughts had been turned toward the new manufacturing town growing up on the banks of the Merrimack. He had once taken a journey there, with a possibility in his mind of making the place his home, his limited income furnishing no adequate promise of a maintenance for his large family of daughters. From the beginning, Lowell had a high reputation for good order, morality, piety, and all that was dear to the old-fashioned New Englander's heart. After his death, my mother's thoughts naturally followed the direction his had taken, and seeing no other opening for herself, she sold her small estate and moved to Lowell with the intention of taking a corporation house for mill-girl boarders. Some of the family objected, for the old-world traditions about factory life were anything but attractive, and they were current in New England until the experiment at Lowell had shown that independent and intelligent workers invariably gave their own character to their occupation. My mother had visited Lowell, and she was willing and glad, knowing all about the place, to make it our home. The change involved a great deal of work. Borders signified a large house, many beds, and an infinite number of people. Such piles of sewing accumulated before us. A sewing bee volunteered by the neighbors reduced the quantity a little, and our child fingers had to take their part but the seams of those sheets did look to me as if they were miles long. My sister Lita and I had our stint, so much to do, every day. It was warm weather, and that made it the more tedious, for we wanted to be running about the fields we were so soon to leave. One day, in sheer desperation, we dragged a sheet up with us into an apple tree in the yard, and sat and sewed there through the summer afternoon, beguiling the irksomeness of our task by telling stories and guessing riddles. It was hardest for me to leave the garret and the garden. In the old houses the garret was the children's castle, the rough rafters. It was always an unfinished room, otherwise not a true garret. The music of the rain on the roof, the worn sea-chests with their miscellaneous treasures, the blue-roofed cradle that had sheltered ten blue-eyed babies, the tape-looms and reels and spinning-wheels, the herby smells and the delightful dream-corners. These could not be taken with us to the new home. Wonderful people had looked out upon us from under those garret eaves. Sinbad the sailor and Baron Munchausen had sometimes strayed in and told us their unbelievable stories, and we had there made acquaintance with the great Caliph Harun al-Rashid. To go away from the little garden was almost as bad. Its lilacs and peonies were beautiful to me, and in a corner of it was one tiny square of earth that I called my own, where I was at liberty to pull up my pinks and ladies' delights every day to see whether they had taken root, and where I could give my lazy morning-glory seeds a poke morning after morning to help them get up and begin their climb. Oh, I should miss the garden very much indeed. It did not take long to turn over the new leaf of our home experience. One sunny day three of us children, my youngest sister, my brother John, and I, took with my mother the first stagecoach journey of our lives, 
across Linfield Plains and over Andover Hills, to the banks of the Merrimack. We were set down before an empty house in a yet unfinished brick block where we watched for the big wagon that was to bring our household goods. It came at last, and the novelty of seeing our old furniture settled in new rooms kept us from being homesick. One after another they appeared, bedsteads, chairs, tables, and to me, most welcome of all, the old mahogany secretary with brass-handled drawers that had always stood in the front room at home. With it came the barrel full of books that had filled its shelves, and they took their places as naturally as if they had always lived in this strange town. There they all stood again, side by side on their shelves, the dear, dull, good old volumes that all my life I had tried in vain to take a sincere Sabbath-day interest in. Scott's Commentaries on the Bible, Hervey's Meditations, Young's Night Thoughts, Edwards on the Affections, and the writings of Baxter and Doddridge. Besides these, there were bound volumes of the repository tracts, which I had read and re-read, and the delightfully miscellaneous Evangelicana, containing an account of Gilbert Tennant's wonderful trance. Also the history of the Spanish Inquisition, with some painfully realistic illustrations. A German dictionary, whose outlandish letters and words I like to puzzle myself over, and a descriptive history of Hamburg, full of fine steel engravings, which last two or three volumes my father had bought with him from the countries to which he had sailed in his seafaring days. A complete set of the Missionary Herald, unbound, filled the upper shelves. Other familiar articles journeyed with us, the brass-headed shovel and tongs, that it had been my especial task to keep bright, the two card-tables, which were as unacquainted as ourselves with ace, face, and trump, the two china mugs, with their eighteenth-century lady and gentleman figurines, curiosities brought from over the sea, and reverently laid away by my mother with her choicest relics in the secretary desk. My father's miniature painted in Antwerp a treasure only shown occasionally to us children as a holiday treat, and my mother's easy chair. I should have felt as if I had lost her had that been left behind. The earliest unexpressed ambition of my infancy had been to grow up and wear a cap, and sit in an easy-chair knitting, and look comfortable just as my mother did. Filled up with these things, the little one-windowed sitting-room easily caught the home feeling and gave it back to us. Inanimate objects do gather into themselves something of the character of those who live among them through association, and this alone makes heirlooms valuable. They are family treasures because they are part of the family life, full of memories and inspirations. Bought or sold, they are nothing but old furniture. Nobody can buy the old associations, and nobody who has really felt how everything that has been in a home makes part of it can willingly bargain away the old things. My mother never thought of disposing of her best furniture, whatever her need. It traveled with her in every change of her abiding place, as long as she lived, so that to us children home seemed to accompany her wherever she went and, remaining yet in the family, it often brings back to me pleasant reminders of my childhood. No other Bible seems quite so sacred to me as the old family Bible, out of which my father used to read when we were all gathered around him for worship. To turn its leaves and look at its pictures was one of our few Sabbath-day indulgences, and I cannot touch it now except with feelings of profound reverence. For the first time in our lives, my little sister and I became pupils in a grammar school for both girls and boys, taught by a man. 
I was put with her into the sixth class, but was sent the very next day to the first. I did not belong in either, but somewhere in between, and I was very uncomfortable in my promotion, for, though the reading and spelling and grammar and geography were perfectly easy, I had never studied anything but mental arithmetic, and did not know how to do a sum. We had to show, when called up to recite, a slateful of sums, done, and proved. No explanations were ever asked of us. The girl who sat next to me saw my distress and offered to do my sums for me. I accepted her proposal, feeling, however, that I was a miserable cheat. But I was afraid of the master, who was tall and gaunt, and used to stalk across the schoolroom, right over the desktops, to find out if there was any mischief going on. Once, having caught a boy annoying a seatmate with a pin, he punished the offender by pursuing him around the schoolroom, sticking a pin into his shoulder whenever he could overtake him and he had a fearful leather strap which was sometimes used even upon the shrinking palm of a little girl. If he should find out that I was a pretender and deceiver as I knew that I was, I could not guess what might happen to me. He never did, however. I was left unmolested in the ignorance which I deserved. But I never liked the girl who did my sums, and I fancied she had a decided contempt for me. There was a friendly-looking boy always sitting at the master's desk. They called him the monitor. It was his place to assist scholars who were in trouble about their lessons. But I was too bashful to speak to him or to ask assistance of anybody. I think that nobody learned much under that regime, and the whole school system was soon after entirely reorganized. Our house was quickly filled with a large feminine family. As a child, the gulf between little girlhood and young womanhood had always looked to me very wide. I suppose we should get across it by some sudden jump by and by. But among these new companions of all ages, from fifteen to thirty years, we slipped into womanhood without knowing when or how. Most of my mother's boarders were from New Hampshire and Vermont, and there was a fresh, breezy sociability about them which made them seem almost like a different race of beings from any we children had hitherto known. We helped a little about the housework before and after school, making beds, trimming lamps, and washing dishes. The heaviest work was done by a strong Irish girl, my mother always attending to the cooking herself. She was, however, a better caterer than the circumstances required or permitted. She liked to make nice things for the table, and having been accustomed to an abundant supply, could never learn to economize. At a dollar and a quarter a week for board, the price allowed for mill girls by the corporations, great care and expenditure was necessary. It was not in my mother's nature closely to calculate costs, and in this way there came to be a continually increasing leak in the family purse. The older members of the family did everything they could, but it was not enough. I heard it said one day, in distressed tone, "'The children will have to leave school and go into the mill.'" There were many pros and cons between my mother and sisters before this was positively decided. The mill agent did not want to take us two little girls, but consented on condition we should be sure to attend school the full number of months prescribed each year. I, the younger one, was then between eleven and twelve years old. I listened to all that was said about it, very much fearing that I should not be permitted to do the coveted work, for the feeling had already frequently come to me that I was the one too many in the overcrowded family nest. Once, before we left our old home, I had heard a neighbor condoling with my mother because there were so many of us, and her empathic reply had been a great relief to my mind. There isn't one more than I want. 
I could not spare a single one of my children. But her difficulties were increasing, and I thought it would be a pleasure to feel that I was not a trouble or burden or expense to anybody. So I went to my first day's work in the mill with a light heart. The novelty of it made it seem easy, and it really was not hard just to change the bobbins on the spinning frames every three-quarters of an hour or so, with half a dozen other little girls who were doing the same thing. When I came back at night the family began to pity me for my long, tiresome day's work, but I laughed and said, "'Why, it is nothing but fun. It is just like play.' And for a little while it was only a new amusement. I liked it better than going to school and making believe I was learning when I was not. And there was a great deal of play mixed with it. We were not occupied more than half the time. The intervals were spent frolicking around the spinning frames, teasing and talking to the older girls, or entertaining ourselves with the games and stories in a corner, or exploring with the overseer's permission the mysteries of the carding room, the dressing room, and the weaving room. I never cared much for machinery. The buzzing and hissing and whizzing of pulleys and rollers and spindles and flyers around me often grew tiresome. I could not see into their complications or feel interested in them. But in a room below us we were sometimes allowed to peer in through a sort of blind door at the great water-wheel that carried the works of the whole mill. It was so huge that we could only watch a few of its spokes at a time, and part of its dripping rim moving with a slow, measured strength through the darkness that shut it in. It impressed me with something of the awe which comes to us in thinking of the great power which keeps the mechanism of the universe in motion. Even now the remembrance of its large, mysterious movement, in which every little motion of every noisy little wheel was involved, brings back to me a verse from one of my favorite hymns. Our lives through various scenes are drawn and vexed by trifling cares, while thine eternal thought moves on thy undisturbed affairs. There were compensations for being shut in to daily toil so early. The mail itself had its lessons for us but it was not, and could not be, the right sort of life for a child, and we were happy in the knowledge that, at the longest, our employment was only to be temporary. When I took my next three months at the grammar school, everything there was changed, and I too was changed. The teachers were kind and thorough in their instruction, and my mind seemed to have been plowed up during that year of work, so that knowledge took root in it easily. It was a great delight to me to study, and at the end of the three months the master told me that I was prepared for the high school. But alas, I could not go. The little money that I could earn one dollar a week besides the price of my board was needed in the family, and I must return to the mill. It was a severe disappointment to me, though I did not say so at home. I did not at all accept the conclusion of a neighbor whom I heard talking about it with my mother. His daughter was going to the high school and my mother was telling him how sorry she was that I could not. "'Oh,' he said in a soothing tone, "'my girl hasn't got any such headpiece as yours has. Your girl doesn't need to go.' Of course I knew that whatever sort of a headpiece I had, I did need and want just that very opportunity to study. I think the solution was then formed inwardly that I would go to school again sometime, whatever happened.' I went back to my work, but now without enthusiasm. I had looked through an open door that I was not willing to see shut upon me. I began to reflect upon life rather seriously for a girl of twelve or thirteen. What was I here for? What could I make of myself? Must I submit to be carried along with the current and do just what everybody else did? No. 
I knew I should not do that, for there was a certain myself who was always starting up with her own original plan or aspiration before me, and who was quite indifferent as to what people generally thought. Well, I would find out what this myself was good for, and that she should be. It was but the presumption of extreme youth. How gladly would I know now, after these long years, just why I was sent into the world, and whether I have in any degree fulfilled the purpose of my being. In the older times it was seldom said to little girls, as it always has been said to boys, that they ought to have some definite plan, while they were children, what to be and do when they were grown up. There was usually but one path open before them to become good wives and housekeepers, and the ambition of most girls was to follow their mother's footsteps in this direction, a natural and laudable ambition. But girls, as well as boys, must often have been conscious of their own peculiar capabilities, must have desired to cultivate and make use of their individual powers. When I was growing up they had already begun to be encouraged to do so. We were often told that it was our duty to develop any talent we might possess, or at least to learn how to do some one thing which the world needed, or which would make it a pleasanter world. When I thought what I should best like to do, my first dream, almost a baby's dream, about it was that it would be a fine thing to be a schoolteacher like Aunt Hannah. Afterward, when I heard that there were artists, I wish I could sometime be one. A slate and pencil to draw pictures was my first request whenever a day's ailment kept me at home from school. And I rather enjoyed being a little ill for the sake of amusing myself in that way. The wish grew up with me, but there were no good drawing teachers in those days, and if there had been, the cost of instruction would have been beyond the family means. My sister Emily, however, who saw my taste and shared it herself, did her best to assist me, furnishing me with pencil and paper and paint-box. If I could only make a rose bloom on paper, I thought I should be happy. Or if I could at least succeed in drawing the outline of winter-stripped boughs as I saw them against the sky, it seemed to me that I should be willing to spend years in trying. I did try a little, and often. Jack Frost was my most inspiring teacher. His skeletons on the bedroom window-pane in cold mornings were my ideal studies of Swiss scenery, crags and peaks and chalets and fir-trees, and graceful tracery of ferns, like those that grew in the woods where we went huckleberrying, all blended together by his touch of enchantment. I wondered whether human fingers ever succeeded in imitating that lovely work. The taste has followed me all my life through, but I could never indulge it except as a recreation. I was not to be an artist, and I am rather glad that I was hindered, for I had even stronger inclinations in other directions, and art, really noble art, requires the entire devotion of a lifetime. I seldom thought seriously of becoming an author, although it seemed to me that anybody who had written a book would have a right to feel very proud. But I believe that a person must be exceedingly wise before presuming to attempt it, although now and then I thought I could feel ideas growing in my mind that it might be worth while to put into a book, if I lived and studied until I was forty or fifty years old. I wrote my little verses, to be sure, but that was nothing, they just grew. They were the same as breathing or singing. I could not help writing them, and I thought and dreamed a great many that were ever put on paper. They seemed to fly into my mind and away again like birds with a carol through the air. It seemed strange to me that people should notice them, or should think my writing verses anything peculiar, for I supposed that they were in everybody's mind, just as they were in mine, and that anybody could write them who chose. One day I heard a relative say to my mother, 
keep what she writes till she grows up, and perhaps she will get money for it. I have heard of somebody who earned a thousand dollars by writing poetry. It sounded so absurd to me. Money for writing verses? One dollar would be as ridiculous as a thousand. I should as soon have thought of being paid for thinking. My mother, fortunately, was sensible enough never to flatter me or let me be flattered about my scribbling. It never was allowed to hinder any work I had to do. I crept away into a corner to write what came into my head, just as I ran away to play, and I looked upon it only as my most agreeable amusement, never thinking of preserving anything which did not of itself stay in my memory. This, too, was well, for the time did not come when I could afford to look upon verse-writing as an occupation. Through my life it has only been permitted to me as an aside from other more pressing employments. Whether I should have written better verses had circumstances left me free to do what I chose, it is impossible now to know. All my thoughts about my future sent me back to Aunt Hannah and my first infantile idea of being a teacher. I foresaw that I should be that before I could be or do anything else. It had been impressed upon me that I must make myself useful in the world, and certainly one could be useful who could keep school as Aunt Hannah did. I did not see anything else for a girl to do who wanted to use her brains as well as her hands, so the plan of preparing myself to be a teacher gradually and almost unconsciously shaped itself in my mind as the only practicable one. I could earn my living in that way, all important consideration. I liked the thought of self-support, but I would have chosen some artistic or beautiful work if I could. I had no especial aptitude for teaching and no absorbing wish to be a teacher, but it seemed to me that I might succeed if I tried. What I did like about it was that one must know something first. I must acquire knowledge before I could impart it, and that was just what I wanted. I could be a student wherever I was and whatever else I had to be or do, and I would. I knew I should write, I could not help doing that, for my hand seemed instinctively to move toward pen and paper in moments of leisure. But to write anything worth while, I must have mental cultivation. So, in preparing myself to teach, I could also be preparing myself to write. This was the plan that indefinitely shaped itself in my mind as I returned to my work in the spinning room, and which I followed out, not without many breaks and hindrances and neglects, during the next six or seven years, to learn all I could so that I should be fit to teach or to write as the way opened. And it turned out that fifteen or twenty of my best years were given to teaching. End of chapter 7